Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm currently sitting on the floor of my boyfriend's parents' house holding the microphone in my lap because I'm a professional and this is how one podcasts. Or if you're not doing it this way, then I think that you might be doing it wrong and I'm doing it right and I'm proud of me. Um, I realized something. So, you know, I think that saying that opening has just become part of my vernacular now that I don't really think about it. It just slips off the tongue And I had a realization that I introduced myself twice at the top of this podcast, always and in perpetuity. And I'm, I'm displeased. I think that I, you know, I opened by saying, hey, people, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz. Makes sense. You know, just, you know, check in, you know, just so we're all level setting. I say, shut up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And then I come right back in with a, I'm Evan Ross Katz, which you know for two reasons. One, more than likely if you're listening to this, you know. It's like what Christina Aguilera says in Your Body. Um, she says, I think you already know my name. I think the same could be true of, of this situation as well. Not to mention the fact that I just introduced myself. So I'm embarrassed for not noticing that. I had one of those sort of like uh, wakes up in the middle of the night moments recently where I was like, something feels weird. Um and it was not that I left the oven on. It was that I introduced myself twice at the top of my podcast. So that's weird. I don't love it. I'm going to change it moving forward. Season three, episode 10, I think we're at. Um, and this is when we realize. So all this to say, we are living, breathing organisms who can grow and change at any juncture of our lives. So you know what? Really, I bring this up as, you know, a lesson for us all that uh, we are not stagnant. Uh, we are not stuck. We can move through the world and we can be better. Happy Pride Month. Okay, so we will talk Pride briefly in a moment, but I did want to touch down on a new uh, variety cover uh, that reads, Yep, I'm Che. 
Sada Ramirez reveals all about And Just Like That, Romancing Miranda, and TV's buzziest queer character. It's a profile written by Kate Arthur. It came out on the first day of Pride. It uh, it made a big impact for, for people like me. Um, I do think that we could talk about Kim Cattrall's new comments about And Just Like That and her lack of participation, which then prompted uh, the Hollywood Reporter podcast's Scott Feinberg to ask Sarah Jessica Parker about it during a recent interview. She went long for the first time ever addressing everything with Kim. The studio, when we were going to do the third movie, um, there were things that she requested that they were not able to to do. My takeaway from SJ's comments is that there's just not much there there by way of neither of them are going to get into specifics. SJ seems to paint this more as a financial reason. Kim wanted more from the third Sex in the City film. The studio was not able to meet that and therefore it didn't happen. And that's sort of, you know, what, what SJ puts out. Kim seems to portray, you know, that she did not have a great experience working on the series or the film, um, that she felt ostracized from the group, and that, you know, as a result, she did not want to be a part of the show anymore. Both things can be true. Two people can be right in a situation. Two people can have their own perspective and have that be valid from where they are sitting. I love them both. I always will. And I wasn't there. So I think that We've kind of said all that we can say um, with regards to this. I do want to note the fact that SJ was quick to point out the fact that she does not like the characterization of this as a cat fight. So I just wish that they would stop calling this a cat fight or an argument yeah. or because it doesn't reflect. And what I took away from that was sort of the gendered language that goes into discussions around, you know, two people in Hollywood having, you know, a public spat with one another. Um, however, I do think it's kind of notable that like this is a feud. So perhaps she's coming down specifically on the word catfight, which I'm, I, that is a conversation to be had without question. But like this is a very public feud in the way that we do not often have with celebrities. I think part of the reason why there's been an ongoing fascination with this is that, you know, Kim went very public with, you know, that Instagram story several years ago, um, the notes app screenshot that she took and posted on Instagram directly, you know, saying at SJP, um, this is how I feel. So it's become public conversation because it was made public by one of the two people involved. There's a clear reticence from the other person involved to talk about it publicly, excuse me, to talk about it publicly. And yet, when you have this venture like and just like that, which is basically, you know, revisiting this story in real time, it's hard not to talk about it, right? Because on the one hand, it's like, well, you know, this happened so many years ago. Why are we still talking about it? And it's like, well, well, we're still talking about it because there's a new show with 75% of the core cast and, you know, a notable omission from who many believe to be the most vital character on the show. I know I I feel that way. So I'm glad SJ did the interview. I appreciated her walking through her perspective on how it all went down. And I think that we can collectively say that we've heard everything that needs to be said on this feud. 
Now, if Darren Starr, the creator of Sex and the City, or Patricia Field, the costume designer for the Sex and the City series and 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 uh, both the subsequent movies, if either of them want to come forward and talk about this, I will listen because I am gay and I love drama. Um, but I think that as far as like people writing think pieces on it or people like me discussing it in podcast form, I think that we can put a, a lid on it. But what I don't want to put a lid on ever is discourse about Che Diaz, um, who it is confirmed in this Variety profile will be coming back for season two and in what seems to be a bigger way. The way that uh, Michael Patrick King, who is the creator of And Just Like That, puts it in this piece, he says that he saw the first season as people judging a book by its cover. And in season two, he says it's going to be about reading the book. This was the first signal, actually, there's been quite a few signals before this, but that there, and I think we've talked about this, there's some dissonance between Michael Patrick King and it seems like the leadership of And Just Like That's perspective on people's perceptions of And Just Like That. Um, they feel like it's us and we're not really getting it. Like what they're putting down, we're not picking up and that's our fault. And I think for many of us, we feel like, we're just having a laugh at what's being put down because it's hilarious. But I took issue, and when I say I took issue, I'm not like mad about it, but like I did think there was some aspects of this profile that sort of conveyed in very real terms some of the problem that has existed with And Just Like That and, and seems that it will continue to exist. And I wanted to point out one thing that the author of the Variety piece wrote. It's uh, Kate, Kate Arthur, who's a fantastic writer, at Variety, writes, uh, quote, Che became an object of cruel mockery and the progenitor of a million Hey, It's Che Diaz memes and jokes about their Netflix comedy concert, as Miranda nerdily called it. When those detractors included LGBTQ viewers, the idea of Che exposed that perhaps those people simply wanted more palatable representation, more white and more cisgender. For gay Che haters, the call was coming from inside the house. End quote. I think this is a wild and unfounded assertion. What I read from this is that basically for anyone that did not vibe with Che, and particularly the LGBTQ viewer that did not vibe with Che, it was, in Kate's words, exposing the idea that we wanted more palatable representation, that basically our issues with Che was that Che was not more white and more cisgender. And I think that that is... Part of the pitfall that happens with shows like this that seek to course correct representation in some way, which is to say that the effort to do it, while admirable, ended up making it so a character like Che has to, I think, maybe has to, question mark, um, embody all that is being non-binary. And what I hate about this quote, hate's a strong word, what I hate about this quote is that it makes it seem like to not like Che means that we are taking issue, we, the viewer that doesn't like Che, have some sort of issue with representation in some way, you know? I think Che is a badly written and extremely corny character on a show that is often badly written and extremely corny, and I love it, but I don't think I have heard anyone asking that Che be whiter 
or that Che be cisgender. I think that the issue is just with the writing of Che. And again, I come back to the word conflation because this quote is making a lot of assumptions about the viewer and they are big picture assumptions that just cease to realize the fact that like, Sometimes a meme is just a meme. There's not some bigger, grander takeaway from it outside of the fact that, as I said, we just think Che's corny. We don't want Che to be any other way besides, if I were to say, I just want Che off my screen. But that doesn't mean I want less non-binary characters or less non-white characters on my screen. And I think it's very unfair to make that assertion. You know, I think it's important to say here too that it's, Going back to this concept of conflation, Sada Ramirez, who is non-binary, and Che Diaz, who is non-binary, are not the same person. They're not the same entity. So I think that in reading this profile, understanding the fact that Sada, it seems, had to create some distance between themselves and Che, you know, out of self-preservation, I feel bad for them in the sense that I love Sada Ramirez. Sada Ramirez is a terrific actor. We've talked about it on this show, a Tony Award winner. People love and know them from Spamalot you know, from Grey's Anatomy, from so many projects that they've done. And their work on this show is not bad. The character is very poorly conceived and poorly written, but Sada is doing exactly what they should do with the role. I have none of my notes on Che Diaz have to do with Sada's performance in the role. And so I feel bad that if there is any conflation that I think Sada seems to bring with them about the perceptions of Che. And something that uh, Sada says in this profile, they say, quote, if you're going to get caught up in this character, at least learn about how people like Che Diaz are currently trying to survive escalating attacks on our community. And it's like, yes, that's true. But also, again, it's like, why does Che Diaz have to represent non-binary existence? Che Diaz, from our understanding, is a very successful comedian with hordes of fans that come up to them at random events, is asked to speak at random events, which leads me to think that Che Diaz has a level of privilege within the world. I'm not saying it is equal to that of their white cisgender counterparts in the comedy concert world, but I feel like it's taking something very seriously that the reaction to it is not. And I think that's interesting. I mean, all feelings are valid, right? But the fact that Sada feels this way, I think is frustrating because it's giving a level of dignity to a character and to a writing that I think the whole joke that we, we, and when I say we, I mean those of us who make Che Diaz memes, the joke is about Che the character. The the joke has nothing to do with the fact that they are non-binary. It has to do with the fact that the writing lets us know that they are non-binary at every turn, right? Or that they say weird things like doing weed or doing a comedy concert. Like we, we are taking issue with, again, the writing. So I was a bit bummed by this profile because I wish there was more pushback to Sada or to Michael Patrick King or to a number of people working on and just like that because, you know, I've read and listened to all this stuff about our understanding. There seems to be this like mindset where it's like, if you're not understanding the way that we intended it to be, then you're misunderstanding it, which is their opinion to have. And I'd love them to consider the fact that 
maybe the way so many of us are collectively receiving this character, and in some instances this show, is worth considering. That maybe your execution did not land as intended. It's not, I mean, I was going to say it's not a criticism. No, it's a criticism. It's a criticism. So anyway, I encourage people to read this profile because I do think there were some interesting bites from it, but I remain worried because my sense was, oh, season two of And Just Like That is going to be great. Um, They're no longer going to be dealing with as many rigid COVID protocols in filming. They will have more time, I think, and they will be able to, you know, intake the criticisms that have come over the last several months and inform that you know, perspective from viewers into the writing. But my sense is there's going to be a continued level of defensiveness that's going to find its way into the writing that is makes me less excited about season two than I initially was. All this to say, though, like, I'm gonna be watching, uh, injected in my veins, it cannot come soon enough. Um, and I'm curious to see what route they go in, especially tonally. Um, but... Che is going to be back. Yay. Before we get to today's interview with Colton Haynes, I did want to touch down briefly on Pride Month, which, you know, it's here. We're queer. I think you're used to us. I think you are us, most more than likely. Um, Pride Month is tricky, right? Because there's a saccharine approach to Pride Month. There's a honest approach, there's a raw approach, there's a jaded approach, there's an LOL approach, there is an I'm tired approach, um, all of which are valid. Um, I think pride is complicated, right? Because on the one hand, it is, it's something, right? It's something to actually be considered, um, the meaning behind it. And I think that there's a lot of jokes that we make about, for instance, you know, who threw the first brick at Stonewall and, um, LOL, but also, you know, Marsha P. Johnson is believed to have thrown the first brick at Stonewall. And there are probably a number of queer people growing up that do not even know the name Marsha P. Johnson, let alone her legacy. So <laughs> it's a little bit and just like that in the sense of like, you you want to laugh at the thing so bad while also recognizing, you know what, it kind of reminds me of Sada's quote, where it's like, you know, learn about Che Diaz because Che Diaz is one of a populace that is currently trying to survive escalating attacks on the on their community. And it's like, yeah, that that's not untrue. Is this the venue with which to have that conversation? I'm not sure. But if we don't have the conversation, when are we having it? <sighs> but it's also corny. I find pride a little bit corny. But I also think that's coming from the perspective of a 33-year-old who has grown up with a lot of privilege and who, you know, had a version of queerness in their youth, in my youth rather, where, yeah, there was some struggle and some strife, um, but I, I, I knew other gay people existed for much of my life, and, and I am able to look back at a lot of the bullying that I endured and not feel so bad for myself because... I was able to come home and escape into television and I had friends that I was able to be my feminine ultra gay self around without judgment. I had parents who accepted who I was without question. I was comfortable enough to come out. Um, 
are there ways in which I wish that my upbringing was better? Yeah, but I think that that's true of a lot of people, regardless of queerness. So, so I can't help but wonder what the idealized version of pride is in 2022. Like, you know, we say representation matters, and it, it certainly does matter, but I'm not sure if representation by way of figures like Che Diaz is the answer. And yet, without Che Diaz, the statistic around the number of non-binary characters on television is going to be even less than the very small number it is at present. So on the one hand, I'm like, well, it's admirable to have characters like Che Diaz out there because we need them. But then I'm like, ugh. It's a shitty situation, I feel. I feel like that that because we have so little, we have to take scraps and we have to dignify the existence of characters like Che Diaz that are badly written characters, but like we have to take them because we have so few. So the messaging I'm seeing is we have to take the bad ones and we should keep quiet about the fact that they're bad because they're doing more good than they are doing bad. But then it's like, I feel like we're welcoming more bad representations of the community in. I don't know. It's complicated. But anyway, I feel a level of pride this month. I do. I'm, you know, I like seeing all of the people out there sharing stories about, you know, themselves and, and their queer families and I got to see Fire Island. I went to the, the premiere. It's the new Disney Hulu movie, um, written by Joel Kim Booster and starring Joel Kim Booster and it features Bowen Yang and, and Matt Rogers and so many great actors. And I, movies like that coming out on Pride Month, premiering at New Fest, which is an LGBTQ plus film festival. Like, this is all fantastic. More of this, please. Um, but I think there's a bit of, you know, we see a lot of corporate pride and we make a lot of jokes about it, myself included. I think there's a level of damned if you do, damned if you don't. I was saying to a friend recently that when you see these brands change their logo to a rainbow or tweet something about in support of, you know, LGBTQ plus people and or pride, there's a huge level of eye rolliness, right? Because there's something about just, you know, the word corporate that feels antithetical to queerness, which feels intrinsically like a rebellion. And yet a lot of these organizations are giving millions and millions of dollars to queer organizations like the Trevor Project, which is wonderful. And so part of me is like, the more that we make fun of these organizations, the more they're, or excuse me, the less compelled they're going to feel to be a part of Pride. But also it's like, well, we, Pride isn't about them, but like they're helping us, I think. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. It's like the joke of corporate Pride, the, or the, the, the non-joke rather of corporate Pride is that like, Without these corporations' invol- involvement in Pride, whether it be through donations and, or whether it even be just like floats at the Pride Parade, it's like Pride shrinks in its scope significantly, which you could say, well, yeah, it should shrink. It's become too too big for its britches and it's lost its meaning. But, but then it's like, well, there are people in small towns out there that might be able to attend a Pride Parade in their town because of the funding of, you know, of a Bank of America. I mean, I went to the premiere of Fire Island and we were asked to give a round of applause to Chevrolet (laughs) because they're a sponsor for Pride. But on the one hand, I'm like, well, but without Chevrolet, maybe I wouldn't be attending the premiere of Fire Island. So I don't know. 
How do you all feel? I don't know how to feel about it. I recognize it's getting more and more corporate as every year passes. And I'm like, and as much as I'm like, that's the worst thing, I'm like, there are worse things. Worse things like Che Diaz, who I am told via this profile, I I am bad for not vibing with. I am part of the problem. Okay. I also was thinking recently, there is something interesting about you know, I think there's a comparison to be made between Sex and the City and Abercrombie, which are two brands that have radically rebranded themselves in ways that remove a lot of the thing that people originally resonated with about them. And just, you know, sort of questioning that effort um, in saying, do we need to course correct our past or do we need more things like Fire Island? Which I would say the writing of Fire Island reminded me of early Sex in the City, so many of the jokes. And do we just need more? Is the goal that we look back on the past and say, this is how we, how we improve upon it by bringing it back and, 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 and changing aspects about it? Or do we move forward with the knowledge of our past mistakes and our past oversights? And is that how we move forward in the world? questions to consider. I'm really excited for you all to hear this interview with Colton. Um, We are old friends and I was excited about this interview and the opportunity to present a version of Colton that I've long known, that I've known that he has, for his own reasons, sort of held back on. Not every public figure owes 100% of themselves to the public. They owe none of themselves, really. I want to encourage people, though, to check out this book, Miss Memory Lane. It's a very honest look at a childhood that I think was spent just not being noticed. It was, this is my reading of it, a kid who like many of us, didn't know who they were or where they fit in fit in, in the world, but didn't have sort of the necessary people around them to help serve as, you know, light posts. Is that what it is? Lighthouses, light posts, whatever. He, he was lacking people out there um, in his life to guide him. And as a result, found his way into many precarious situations that, I bet you aren't entirely unfamiliar to a lot of people that will read the book, a lot of people listening, and I think a lot of good will come from this book, both for Colton and for many people reading it, because I think that um, vulnerability, it's tough, right? It's tough to really be vulnerable because you have to accept criticism when you're vulnerable, and I, I, I am glad that Colton made the decision to share this story and to do it um, so honestly and brutally at times. Um, So without further ado, we will go to my interview, my being Evan Ross Katz, who, you know, I introduced you to twice in all of the episodes leading up to now. It changes today. (sighs) You know, we're growing, we're changing, we're here, we're queer. Without any further ado, here is my interview with the great Colton Haynes. He is an actor and now author who is best known for his starring roles as Jackson Whitmore in the MTV series Teen Wolf and as Roy Harper slash Arsenal in the CW series Arrow. His other television credits include CSI Miami, Pushing Daisies, The Gates, Scream Queens, and American Horror Story Cult. He has appeared in music videos for My Chemical Romance, Leona Lewis, Victoria Justice, 
and most recently appeared in Lil Nas X's music video for Industry Baby. I first profiled him a decade ago for a cover of Essential Own Magazine, and we have remained friends ever since. Now he's the author of Miss Memory Lane, which, according to Elton John, is a brutally honest memoir that socks you in the gut with its candor. I would agree. He is a remarkably resilient person, deeply curious, and wonderfully sensitive. I love him, and I am delighted to welcome my friend Colton Haynes. So this is kind of funny. We first met some time ago in the spring of 2014 when I was assigned a profile of you at Essential Ohm magazine. And I believe we met at the Russian Tea Room, I think. And it was one of my first print interviews ever. And I was very quite nervous. And I'm just wondering if you remember that day at all. I, I do Now I do remember. And then we kept in contact ever, ever since then, pretty much. Um, Wait, send me the selfies. I will. And also, I just want to say wildly inappropriate of me, a journalist, to take selfies with my subjects, but it's still something I do to this day. I think it's kind of ridiculous that the industry like separates people who are on one side of the camera and the other. Um, like I'm the person who will see that a fan is like in Times Square and I'll DM them and be like, I'm also in Times Square. And then I that happened with a couple of the girls who now work for Teen Wolf. I like hung out with them in Times Square. Now, you went on in your new book to thank me in the acknowledgments, and I bring that up because of what you said in there. You write a thank you to me and several other writers for the stories that we wrote that, quote, accompanied your coming out process. And I found that particularly interesting because I remember specifically not including anything about your sexuality in the piece because I felt at the time, and though we did talk about boys in the interview, you and I, I felt like it was not relevant to the story that I was writing about you. And so therefore it just, it wasn't in the piece. And so I'm wondering what you meant by that, uh, what you mean your coming out process and, and why certain writers helped you in that, what, what that meant. When I was started, when I was having my first conversations with you, I didn't necessarily go into it like trying to be this kind of character that I created. I was still me. Um, and I, we did talk about guys and I, I, if, if I'm remembering correctly, I wasn't trying to be this like straight bro. I think I was, I mean, I was essentially out to you when we were talking. And so that the fact that I could have this, this experience when I was talking and having someone interview me about this, but also the fact that um, you and a few other people were so like, what's the word I'm looking for? Didn't use, um, you know, me confiding in, in, in y'all, against me. And also that was still two years before I came out of the closet. You've, you've always been just really kind. And I think that especially having someone who is also in the queer community to have that support was something I never had and something that I still at times kind of struggle with as, as well. Well, I thank you for that. I do want to just mention this book, I could not put it down. And I said this to you uh, when we spoke yesterday or a couple of days ago, but it's not just the subject matter. It's also the writing style and the prose in this book. You are, in, in addition to having a really uh, incredible story to tell, you tell it in such a way um, that it reminded me of this fabulous book that I read in my formative years called I Am Not Myself These Days by Josh Kilmer Purcell, if anyone listening has heard of it. Um, but I just, I really, really enjoyed reading this book and I came away from it um, 
having a much better sense of you, who you are, which I think is the goal of a memoir, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. I used to feel like um, bad about this, but in a way I'm much better on the page, if that makes sense, because for me, I felt often ignored or I felt like um, every time I'd open my mouth, the second one word would come out of it, a timer would go off and I'd have 10 seconds to get my point across before I'm either ignored or before I'm shushed. So, um, so once I kind of started writing this, I really was like, if I'm going to do this memoir, I'm going to do it um, exactly how I want to. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to not let other people um, bring their opinions in because this is my story. And I didn't, not once did my publisher try to um, censor me. Uh, it's a very graphic book. I talk about a lot of graphic sexual things. And I also, um, yeah, I was just really, really happy about that. Like uh, whenever, after I took two months away from the book, um, after almost having, I think I probably had like 50 mental breakdowns. Um, I got to read it again for the first time with different eyes. And I was just so like, I would say probably for the first time in my life, I was proud of myself, which is something that I still kind of have a hard time hearing myself say. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't even know that you asked me a question. I'm just talking. <laughs> no, I did. And, and, and you ought to be proud of yourself. And I, I too am proud of you. Now, I sense from some of our conversations in the lead up to today that you have a bit of anxiety about the press surrounding this book in that it's your first press cycle in some time. And you might be asked to expound upon some passages in the book that are incredibly raw and perhaps memories that you aren't keen to dredge up. And I'm wondering in this moment now, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? I hope that people ask me about those hard memories. I'll, I'm just gonna have to really breathe if when I go into promoting this book, people ask me stupid questions that have nothing to do with the tone of the book, that you know, that are they're trying to get headlines that are splashy to try to um, one would think that while you're doing press for a project, that people are trying to help you promote it um, and help you um succeed and unfortunately a lot of it is is not the case i think a lot of it is to deflect from or to cause drama around things and then people ultimately don't get to hear your story i would love to be talked to like a normal person instead of a you know washed up flop uh gay has been divorcee wannabe actress you know what i mean well i hope that my question today will reflect uh, that that want. That, that wasn't a read. No, I didn't take it as such. No, but I'm just saying it's like I tried to do my due diligence in my preparation for today because I'm not interested in those salacious headlines, but I think there's a lot to unpack in this book. And so I hope to do it with nuance. Before we talk about the book, I want to ask about your casting and Lil Nas X's Industry Baby music video. And I want to know how that came about and what it was like working with such a phenom on such an anticipated project. When people ask, it's almost like I, I still don't believe that it actually happened, so I just forget about it. Um, it was funny. I got a call from my manager at the time, um, and they said, "Oh, so there's this like music video. Um, you know, there. I'm sure you might not want to do it." And they didn't know who Lil Nas X was. There's a reason why they probably wouldn't know, but um, uh, they're straight. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I just have like looked up to his talent, the way that he doesn't give a fuck, the way he's just so unapologetic. Just to get a call 
asking if I would do it, I was of course like they've got the wrong person um, or it's going to be like one of like the Taylor Swift. Um, yeah, you need to calm down where she has like all the gays in Hollywood in it. I just was in my head and because I had no idea what to do. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'll do it. And I showed up and it was just Lil Nas X and his manager and me. And we were just in like this parking lot. And I was like, where's the big production of it all? Where's all this stuff? But it was like a normal situation. There couldn't have been 20 people on that set. And it was, it was just freaking magical. It was like, you know, and then his stylist gave me a pair of his shoes and um, like platforms and I wear them all the time. I mean, to be honest, okay, I'm like, now I'm just rambling. In my head, I was like, okay, we could change this a little bit. In my head, I was like, how am I gonna make out with Lil Nas <laughs> I was going, okay, well, in, when I read the, the breakdown, um, I would obviously make it look like I'm jerking off to watching his video, but that wasn't, they just wanted me to like laugh or something, but I saw it a different way. Um, I didn't end up in making out, you know, with him, but, um, uh, but I did get to put in that little sexual like tongue thing. I have to say it had to have been something of a, I don't know if full circle is the word, but you know, being that you spent so much of your career forced into the closet and to be a part of a video that's so explicitly queer and celebrating queerness and all of its facets. It made me gleeful to see you in that and being able to be your full self and not have to present yourself in some sort of masculine way. I couldn't understand. I was like, why are they calling me? Why are they calling me? And then that was the moment where I was like, oh, now I'm, you know, I'm the gay uncle now. There's a new generation now and everyone's fucking cool. The song, I still listen to that album every, probably every week. Oh, it's so good. Um, I want to bring a friend of yours into the conversation briefly before we get to the book. Hello, Colton. It's your friend Kiernan Shipka here. Hi, miss you, love you. I have a question. So I feel very honored to be on your Instagram close friends list. I love what you post there. I think your content is beyond thrilling. And I often find myself wondering who else is seeing this? Who is the wild card close friends edition? Who is the most interesting, unexpected person on your Instagram close friends list? I love you, Kiernan. Oh my gosh. I've, I'm so lucky to have gotten to know her over the pandemic. And she's the queen of most, most things. She's just the queen. She's the most likable. When I first saw her, I thought she was seven feet tall. And it was the way, I think it was the way she walked into the room. I was like, wait, what is happening? Like, you know, step on me, mommy. But um, <laughs> so it's not going to be a great answer because I, I rarely post, like I don't post a lot. I did a week of posting on close friends where I sent it to maybe, I think there's like nine people and it's the nine people who I know when I am trying to be funny, I want my friends to go, why Colton, like, why are you doing this? Like this, why are you like this? And that's my personality. So it would be like Paul and Lucia. Um, it'd be like or Paul Downs and Lucia and Yellow and then Kiernan and Sam Lansky. I posted a pitch because I write these stupid pitches just for shows that I think would be funny. And they are so funny to me and they would not be funny to anyone else. Uh, I posted some, my brother, I texted my brother something about Ava Max and my brother thought I was talking about um, Amanda Knox. And 
they're not the same people as we know. Um, and it's in my brother straight. And so it just was so funny to me that we talked about the two different people for a good hour. Um, and then, so yeah, I wrote this stupid pitch about it and I read it to my closeties. Amanda Knox could be described as sweet, but psycho, you know, I mean, the shoot does somewhat fit. It definitely, it definitely does. But it, in the pitch, it was like a group of gays, you know, going for the time of their life to go to a uh, Ava Max concert. And then this group of straight docu, this, these straight guys who are making a documentary, um, think they're going to make it about Amanda Knox. It's stupid, but. Before we get deeper into it, let's take a quick break and check in with today's sponsor. It's June, which means it's Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Which means like most months, but especially this month, I'm drinking Can, the queer-founded, cannabis-infused social tonic that I simply can't get enough of. This Pride Month, Can is partnering with Weed Maps to say gay with a star-studded campaign celebrating queer joy and inclusivity, plus cannabis. Their original Pride anthem, Tastes So Good, and its accompanying music video bring together a number of notable faces and voices, including Gus Kenworthy, Kesha, Vincent, Patricia Arquette, Haley Kiyoko, MNEK, Cornbread, Carrie Colby, Georges, Drag Race Season 13 winner Willow Pill, and forever friend of the pod, the legendary Sarah Michelle Gellar. To watch the video and learn where you can purchase can, head to weedmaps.com slash pride hyphen drink can. And remember, it's can with two N's. That's weedmaps.com slash pride hyphen drink can. Happy pride. So good. And we're back. Let's talk about this book. Let's start with something rather basic. But can you talk to me about the title of this book, the title Miss Memory Lane? Where does that title come from? Who, who is Miss Memory Lane? I'm obsessed with my memories. I mean, I have probably 85,000 um, pictures on my phone just currently. And I'm I'm just always documenting things and um, never wanting to, I don't know why the Aerosmith song like popped into my head, but like, I don't want to miss a thing kind of, th- kind of situation. Um, but I, I tend to, in a way, try to just capture memories. But in a way, my, my therapist thinks it's to distract from living in the moment and living in the now. And for me, I just love looking back on those memories and I'm always telling stories and I'll, I'll talk someone's ear off about something that is really important to me, but they don't know these people, they don't know. So it's not important to them. Uh, so my nickname became Miss Memory Lane because I'm just constantly flooding friends, you know, text messages with old photos um, and they're like, how, where did you take this? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, this was a great memory. So Miss Memory Lane became my nickname, but in a way through writing this book, I found journals from my grandma. I found journals and letters from my mom, you know, that, that they would write back and forth to each other. Um, and in a way, I mean, they, Miss Memory Lane is also my mom and it's also my, my grandma. Let me ask you about your mother, who you brought up, who is a, a complex figure that you present in this book. I get the sense that she both loved you so much and failed in her attempts to show you that love at many junctures throughout her life. And yet I came away from the story still understanding this deep-seated love that you two have, have present tense, for one another. Um for those that don't know, your mother passed away several years ago, but I use present tense because I feel like love, love is eternal. Love, the bond of mother and son, especially. Um, how would you describe your relationship with your mother through the years? 
now, especially she's been, she passed away four years ago, a couple days ago, but um, I'm burping. I'm not crying yet. Um, uh, we were like really, really poor. And so like our Sundays wouldn't be like going to church. It'd be like going or to attend a service. It'd be like going to, you know, pick up the free food that they would give away at churches and, you know, fighting over our EBT card for our food stamp card. And, um, but my relationship with my mom was always, I almost wanted what she had in a way. And when it comes to the effect she had on people, and it wasn't just with men, my mom was really, you know, she was stunning, uh, but she was charismatic and she had this confidence. Um, but she, you know, she would always be around these men that would like dim her light. And unfortunately, <laughs> like I, I'm just like my mom. And so, but our relationship over the years was really complicated because whenever I basically, whenever I went through puberty, it, I, I just turned into a fucking hellion. I was a, I was so angry at everything because I, I don't know, I just felt invisible. And I, I think it also was my mom was so destructive and, you know, my parents met in rehab. And so, um, and then they escaped together and they just always had this, uh, these issues and they always struggled with substance abuse and, uh, with alcoholism. And I didn't even realize, I didn't even realize that that was a, an actual disease until after I went through it. And so, um, we, I, we would have these six, sometimes maybe nine month stents where she would be sober and she was like a fucking angel. And those memories are the ones that I have that I hold the dearest. Um, but being Miss Memory Lane, I have, I documented all of it. I have video footage of all the hard times. I have, you know, footage of the great times and um, which that's all really special to me. But in this book, I, I love my mom more than anything in the world. And I always will. And I think that that really shows um, in the book. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just happy that I got to be with her in her final days. And um, even though I was drunk the whole time, but yeah, I miss her. One thing about writing a memoir and many people who have done, done this, written memoirs have spoken about this is the difficulty in exposing other people's flaws or inadequacies in making space to tell your story from your perspective. And I'm wondering how you reconciled moments where telling your truth could potentially implicate and expose someone without their consent. I'm not just thinking about your mom and dad. There's just many people throughout this book who you're being honest about your experiences and in doing so, having to reveal things about others that show them in not the best of light. Every scenario is exactly how it happened, but I did work really hard to change, I mean, change details, change names. It would ruin the healing process for me to try to take, take um, you know, take people down. But a lot of the things that happened in the book, my family has known about since I was, I mean, even before I was a teenager, which my mom did say, which, I mean, she's not around. So well, she's probably pissed somewhere in heaven. She's like, I fucking told you not to tell that story. Um, but there's a personal thing that happened with my uncle when I was six that my mom really, really um, didn't want me to ever talk about. Um, and I, of course, didn't have the opportunity to write a book four years ago, or at least I hadn't had one locked in. But um, 
I just needed to for myself. You write a very moving passage about your uncle later on in the book. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you say something to the effect of, thank you, I hate you, how could you? I can't stop thinking about those three sentences in succession um, because I think the first one, many will find unexpected, if not jarring, but I think there's a lot in that. Um, And I'm wondering if you could unpack that at all, that feeling of thanking who you even recognize. I think today you see, you recognize this as abuse that you endured. Almost thanking them in a way to arm me um, or at least try to arm me for for kind of the life that I had ahead of me. Uh, But I clearly wasn't thanking them in like, you know, a real way. Yeah, yeah, I I didn't get that impression. With your permission, I'd love to talk about Damon, who's a prominent character in the book and a person in your life. I'm wondering if you can contextualize for our listeners who Damon was. Mm-hmm. Damon, it's funny. I'm like, okay, names. names I know. Names. I was gonna, yeah, yeah. Damon like, in the okay. book. Yeah, I I grew up um, in a small town, and um, there was just one uh, person that was always kind of around from like a different, the towns were small. So there was a uh, neighboring town um, and you kind of knew everyone even from that town because it was like four miles away. And um, I always was drawn to to authority figures because I didn't have any at home of my own. And I was left up to my own devices. I got to do whatever I wanted and had no structure. Um, and so I saw this person, this authority figure who had a, you know, a badge and the whole get up. And I'm, I'm literally in my head going, okay, what, which parts did I take out? Which part did I keep in? And I just, I've read it a thousand times, but um, you know, I saw this person and for a couple years, I was like, like, I got, I got to go to daddy daycare with that, that guy. Like it, I was like, it's going to be on. That's how I'm, I am going to have sex with, with them. And I remember having those thoughts from like, sixth or seventh grade. I mean, that was a very, 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 very overly sexual kid. And eventually, once I'd been kicked out and started running away, I needed a a ride into where I was doing musical theater. And he started giving me rides. And our kind of relationship started. And um, when I was writing it, the the one part I explained, which I don't, I mean, it doesn't really give anything away, because it's very clear our age difference from the beginning of the chapter. But there's a line where I say, after I go into detail about what happened, um, I say, I was 14, he was 42. And every time I read that line, I'm like, I don't see that. Like I see an adult me making adult decisions uh, because I was living a very adult life at that time. But in the same way that all kids are like, you know, I'm, I'm old, you know, I'm an old soul, blah, blah, all this, all that. I was not uh, ready to have a sexual relationship with someone. I also, it was not legal. I fell in love with someone who I, I explained treated me like a shiny little plastic thing. I'm like, can I just read the book now to everyone? Like, well, can we just, I, can we- <laughs> I'd like to read to you um, something that you write about Damon and just sort of get your response because this was a passage that I thought was particularly, uh, worth uh, thinking about. So you write, quote, that was a man who chose to love me, who loved me because he saw something in me worth loving. If I'd been forced to tell someone what was happening between us, I would have insisted that I seduced him. I was the aggressor. I wore him down. That's a feeling I still carry with me to this day. I wasn't a victim. He saw my worth. 
Did it matter that in the eyes of the law, he was a predator who groomed me and took advantage of me? Such an idea would have never occurred to me then. I'm wondering with all of these years of, of hindsight, how it occurs to you now. It's a very tricky thing because people get very, very, very um, angry when, when some people aren't comfortable calling things exactly how they are. Rightfully so, but I think it's all a personal experience. So my personal experience, you know, and that, that is, it's, some, it's funny because I'm, I'm finding myself right now still doing the thing that, I'm, that I do a lot, which is, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to offend this person, but like, it's my personal experience. And that, you know, my personal experience was that in my head, I had my sights on this man from the time I was in sixth grade until we had sex. And then that it happened when I was like 14. Um, and he avoided me like the plague. But any fucking one in their right mind who's 42 knows that you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't be doing uh, thing, sexual things with minors. I now know that it is, um, that I was not the aggressor. <laughs> Uh, but it's something that I, I still try to work on. And it's something that's very traumatic for me um, and did shape a lot of the ways that I, I go about um, or have gone about relationships in the past. And I'm just better when I'm not um, in relationships because I get to be me. So yeah, um, I don't even remember the question because uh, it's, yeah, that, that, is a, that is a tricky subject because um, Everyone wants to tell you how you are supposed to feel about your specific situation when it comes to sexual abuse. And um, I am still working through it. And I do think that everyone is um, you know, entitled to their own feelings when it comes to things like that. I wanna commend you for sharing that story. I also wanna say that I think it is, I don't wanna say it's a uniquely gay thing, but I think that a lot of young gay men or no, uh, gay men in general, right? Because a lot of older gay men were once young gay men, will read that and something about it will resonate with them in the sense of something happened to me that shouldn't have happened to me at that age and I liked it. And I think that you talking about it both in the book and right now is important. And I do think that beyond just a stigma, I think it's just something that doesn't get talked about enough because we don't want it to sound a certain way. We don't want to sound like we were asking for it, um, which is not the same thing. But sometimes something bad happens to you that should not have happened to you at that age. And it was formative. It meant something to you. It was consequential. And how do we unpack something that is both of those things? So I appreciate you getting into that conversation. Let me ask you this. You talk about coming to New York City. I believe you were around 16 when you first came to the city and you were sort of going on um, casting calls for potential modeling gigs. And you write about sort of uh, being put into a house filled with models and they're all going out and you have your fake ID, but you decide to stay home because you have to be up early for your go-sees. I'm wondering what it was like to be 16 and alone in a city like New York at a time like that, and to call your mother and hear her on the phone. And there's this, you know, you talk about how she's missing you. You hear it in her voice, but you also hear that she's drunk. And so that also keeps you from saying, oh, I wish I was there because you don't necessarily want to be with her in moments like that. 
And yet it had to have felt so, I imagine, so isolating being here in a city like this that's surrounded by people, but can be, uh, is known for being a great place to feel alone. Oh, for sure. And I, I, I talk about, you know, um, doing whatever I can to get off the phone as fast as I can so she won't hear how much I long for her. And, and that, that was hard for me because I, I even have letters, like I have physical letters that she wrote me before she died. And, you know, she said something about uh, this, this one's so amazing. I, I have to post it at some point, but she basically is like, you set out to do everything that I wanted to do in my life. And then it says dot, 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 except being gay. Ha ha. And I'm like, that is so funny to me. Like, but, um, so when I was in New York, that was such a special moment for me because for me, it's always been this way. I have been obsessed with the fashion industry. I obsessed with researching everything about photographers, everything about, you know, uh, I went on the Gia tour, the Gia uh, Karanji tour, Karanji tour. There's a special tour, uh, that you really only know about if you've read the book. Um, and I went on that tour in New York city, like 14 times. I like it, it's this basically someone just takes you around and is like there Gia was there, but I love the fashion industry. I love modeling. I love photo shoots and it's not a it's not because I'm conceited and I love myself because if you read the book you'll understand that that's not the truth I fucking don't um I don't feel that way about myself but I was so lost in the fact that like I truly felt like my dreams were coming true and um it's funny to hear that like your dream is to like be in photo shoots and stuff but for me it's an art like the amount of delusion that I still have but also that I had back then I genuinely was like, well, like, yeah, I'm, I'm also the shortest model, male model in the industry. I'm basically Kate Moss. And I think that that got me um, really to where I was because I lied on my submission. I was 5'8", maybe 5'8". I wore, I rolled up socks and underwear and taped them in the back of my shoes in these boots that I got. And then all of a sudden I was six feet, six feet tall. And so I had to do those things to get out of the situation I was in. And it got me to New York. It, it was just such a great memory. And, but at the same time, that's when my um, hatred towards my, my body and hatred towards um, just, I, that's, when I, that's when I went, oh fuck, if I really wanna do this, I can't be me. I can't, you know, I have to look a different way. I have to starve. I have to, um, I'm broke as fuck. I literally, and hobbling, crying on the streets of New York City in my makeshift heels. I'm go days without eating. I'm going to the same magazine shop where I'm seeing all my friends who I'm living with. They're all like in V, you know, V Man and all the in Numero and all these other magazines. You mentioned in that response that you know anyone that reads this book will will learn that you've you've been on a journey toward loving yourself. And I'm just wondering today, today, Colton, not the Colton reflected in the book. I'm wondering how you, or where, rather where you're at in that journey. The amount of work I've been, I've been doing on myself um, has kind of brought me to a, a place where I can love myself, but also I, I, I have never embraced who I really am. Like I am still that broken little kid who wants to be just like his big older brother who wants to be able to share their personality with people and wants to be seen past their like, you know, uh, jump scare blue eyes. It wasn't until I went on a convention 
I think it was pretty recently, maybe a year ago, in the middle of nowhere, I think it was like Kentucky. And it, someone, uh, this young gay kid came up to me and told me their story. And I was, it was as if the first time I had heard someone say that, that even just my existence helped them come out. And that is what clicked for me. That was like, that is why I, I need to write this book. And that's why I, that's, that's why I'm doing things now is to help people. You have helped people, and I think that you will continue to help many people, uh, especially those who who read this book and, and get to learn more about your story and perhaps uh, learn more about themselves in learning about your story. Um, going back to the modeling days, you were put into a lot of situations that, quite frankly, you shouldn't have, especially in Hollywood. So moving beyond just your modeling days and then into your acting days, but there were also good experiences. And I'd love to ask you about photographer David Armstrong, who you write about in the book, you write that meeting him and working with him, and I believe you were still a teen at the time, uh, was the first time that a man had looked at your face and body and not wanted to take something from you. Can you expound on that? That's gonna, that's that's one of my favorite lines in the book, but that is kind of the moment that I imagine, like, I mean, I'm not gonna be on The View, let's just be real, that would be, a, I watch The View every day, I would love to be. So like Joy, you know, Whoopi, if you guys are watching this, Sunny, walk, read my book. Um, but, uh, uh, that's the moment where I'm, I imagine them, I've had like actual daydreams about this, them imagining that exact quote without like the context behind it. And that's me, you know, being like, well, there's context. And then joy being like, oh, well you said this. And I'm like, joy, I thought we were supposed to be besties. Um, so I played like, it about 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> no, let me get the context. Uh, and me being a rambler, they're like, let's get them off the view. But, um. No, so that specific, uh, when I wrote that, that's the end of the chapter in New York. And, you know, David Armstrong, his work was controversial. Um, he was not a controversial person, but his work was. And um, it, it evoked a response. It almost was a way of commenting on sex or um, as opposed to sexualizing. He made me feel um, like an artist in a way as opposed to just a, you know, a piece of, uh, like a young piece of ass. And that was really special to me because his work is so beautiful and captured and does evoke certain emotion. The impression I got was that he was perhaps the first person to come into your life that didn't want to take something from you, but rather wanted to share something with you. And I still, until the day he died, I kept in contact with him all the time. I want to go back to your mother for a bit. You write about your mother at length in this book, as, as we've spoken about, and the abuse she endured, the loneliness, the isolation, the alcoholism, and then eventually her, her death in 2018. And within much of what you write echoes her story within your own story. And I'm just wondering if you talked to your mom at all throughout this writing process or sought out signs of approval or disapproval. She was just so funny, but she would be like, are you doing this like for, she'd be like, is this actually how you feel? Like when I would do something stupid or like, but are you doing this just so you can have like this, you know, so you can make a movie about it or so you can like do this about it or like write a book. And I'm like, no, I'm, that's not why I'm doing it. Um, uh, and it was like, she, she, she kind of knew in a way that I had wanted to write a book. The only thing that she wanted, which we talked about, I mean, months before she died, um, was she wants uh, she wants Julia Roberts to play uh, her in the miniseries. 
But tell me, were there any conversations that you had with her after her death? In the, in the actual process of writing this memoir in which uh, she spoke to you, she came to you in some kind of way. I see this, this, this healer a lot um, who has always said, I've, I've seen her for years, she's always said that hummingbirds represent my parents. And so I'd gone months past my deadline. I couldn't get to the point where I could write the chapter about my mom because I I, I couldn't even talk. I couldn't even say my mom. I couldn't say that word without crying. Like it got to the point where that was the only thing I could not talk about. And that was the most important part about this book is my mom. And it wasn't until I had three hours left before my deadline. Um, and I'm texting with Peter Borland, my amazing editor, and I'm bawling crying. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And of course, like I've never seen I've never seen 30 hummingbirds or like, I don't even know if they travel in packs. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm gay. It's not even science. I don't know what that, anyway. But like fucking 40, 30 or 40 hummingbirds just like appeared in the backyard. And I was like, what is happening? The, the second to last chapter I wrote, the one about my mom, I wrote in three hours and I wrote without stopping, like to the point where it was like, I, I turned it in and that's what, um, that's what made it. And I remember this memory about this fountain that's really special to me in, in Arkansas across from this hotel that my mom used to work at. And um, it's always been a childhood memory of mine. And I remember every detail. And it, I hadn't thought about that memory in decades and it popped into my head and then it made its way on the page. And it's like, it made the book uh, so special to me. So, and she's always here. She's, she's not even, she's my cat. I got a cat who is my mother. And it's like, she's doing this shit just to like, it's like, she's laughing every day. She's like, you thought you were gonna get rid of me? Try again, bitch. Like, that's what it is. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. Last question about the book. I have a galley copy right now, and it calls it a book of lust, abuse, addiction, stardom, and redemption. And to be honest with you, I don't love that framing because redemption is sought by those who do wrong. And I did not read this book with the sense that you did anything wrong. Trying to give a nice, um, you know, little blurb about this book is fucking impossible. You know, you don't want to detract people from, you know, the book and also you want to give people a happy ending but i didn't read a happy ending i mean did you no i did not i mean it's very it's very it's very up in the air i think the fact that the redemption in a way um that line for me in a way it was is really about hope i think is you know you can go through all these these hard times and um um and you can survive them 
and yeah, maybe I should be like, stop the press. Like, don't print the book because we have to take out this redemption line. No, I don't mean it like that at all. I, I just mean to convey to you that I don't think you did anything wrong. I read this book with the sense that I think a lot of wrong things have been done to you and you reacted to the wrongs that have been done to you. And I just hope that in your journey of, of you know, exposing um, so much about yourself. And again, I hate the word brave, but it is quite brave. I hope in that journey, you can perhaps consider that perspective and, and not see the mistakes so much as the reaction to things that were done to you. With, with that, it's, I think with, with that redemption quality, I understand now why there was such a reaction. Uh, and I do feel bad for closeting and for doing that. It was the only way that I, that I, it was the only path for me if I did want to succeed. And for me specifically, um, if I wanted to, it still is a serious problem in, uh, you know, the industry. And for me at the time, looking the way that I did and uh, having a very stereotypical kind of line into the specific characters I was going to play, um, I, by closeting myself, I now understand why there was such a backlash and a hatred towards me. Because what that, what I essentially, my feeling like I did something wrong, what I did was say, okay, well, unless you do what I did, unless you, you know, um, cover up everything about yourself that's either effeminate, unless you, you change yourself completely, uh, you will never make it. And I changed myself and look where I, look where I am. And so that's where I am sorry. But you weren't granted a lot of grace from people. And it's like, you're young and you're figuring out a system where there's not a ton of rubric. And again, I just think you have to be a little easy on yourself because I think people um, made it difficult in your in your circumstance. Speaking of which, I'm going to ask the question now and, and we'll see where it goes. So you had something of a public feud with actor Noah Galvin back in the day. And I don't want to drudge it up to be salacious. And I really hope you understand that because I actually think there's a, a substantive conversation to be had here. And I, and I bring it up so that we can gain some perspective on it with hindsight, with the hindsight that time affords us. So in 2016, just to set this up, Noah called your coming out, quote, fucking bullshit, because you did not actually use the word gay in the interview that you did with Entertainment Weekly, in which you confirmed your sexual orientation. You responded to Galvin on Instagram at the time, writing, quote, I've never met this kid, so for him to judge me without even meeting and having no idea the struggles I've been through or where I come from is absolutely uncalled for and, quite frankly, embarrassing on his part, end quote. I believe that you two have spoken in the years since, and I'm wondering what you glean from this experience, looking back on it now, a situation that I don't think would happen in 2022. He was tweeting me, saying, congratulating me and saying like, oh my God, bro, like, you know, blah, blah. And then turns around and gives that interview. And that's where I was like, like, wait, why is this happening? I was just so confused. But but that, and what I was talking about earlier, I understand that now because it, I was, you know, I'm not excusing what he did. I, I do think being young, if I had a microphone when I was that age in a way that, that I think he did, who fucking knows? And I wasn't trying to be like closeted and things like that. Who fucking knows what I would have done? So I thought at the time I kind of had my fingers snapping at Noah in that 
It was just, he, it was a burn. He came in real hot, went right for the jugular and sort of used his status of being an out gay actor to sort of hold that against you for not being to the degree of out that he was. But what's missing from that is him not recognizing the privilege that he had in being on a network show, having a job, a regular paycheck that was coming in. And he did not recognize the, your experiences in Hollywood, which were working with managers and agents who actively told you that your gayness would cost you your career. And so I think that adding in that nuance sort of helps say, okay, he did not grant you much grace by coming forward. And I agree with you with what you said, where maybe if, if you if you were in his position, you would have done the same thing because it's it's fun to go to the press and say something spicy and hit at someone else and sort of, you know, get that whole press cycle underway. But not for nothing, he apologized shortly thereafter. But I think what also happened, and this happens often, is the pile-on, right? Which is that gay people tend to love when one gay person goes after another gay person. We get very tribal very quickly. Um, so yeah, that's that's my long-winded perspective. Well, I think oftentimes people don't have the actual facts straight. So like, if someone doesn't like you, it doesn't matter if you you know save their kid from a burning house; they're just not going to like you. Like that. That's the thing, and so. Um, the idea of me at that time was things were terrible. Things were terrible in my life. And then I came out and, oh my God, everything's great now. Look at me. I'm gay, but I'm still rich and famous. And from Noah's perspective is this is what I got from it was that is setting a bad example for, I didn't know I was doing that at the time. I'm not making excuses for him that, you know, it was still fucked up. Um, but I hold on to things a little bit differently to where I think they are like life and death situations. And I was like, maybe I did something wrong. Uh, I need to apologize to this person. Um, and so, but we did, I, we did have a conversation and um, uh, I was able to see things from both sides. Um, I do wish that um, he had the facts straight, but but I understand where he was coming from. One other question I want to ask about the book is you share a story. It was one of the ones I found the most jarring. It was about an acting class that you were taking at one point um, in which you had to get naked. It was part of a prerequisite for the class where the actors would get naked. It was not unsimulated sex, but it wasn't simulated sex. It was you're naked, you have genitals pushing up against you, and you're having to do all of this in front of other actors, um, which just, uh, those are the kind of horror stories that I think so many people think just simply couldn't be real. What I wanted to ask you about that is, do you think that that does that still go on today? I mean, like, I was shocked to read that. 100% there's still a very, very much a gay mafia in this town. And, um, you know, when you go against that gay mafia, you know, you start to be almost the tattletale in a way, or like the, the mole, um, you know, things start changing. Um, I, I really do think it's important to tell these stories and to let people know that they're not gonna get away with shit like this. I want to bring in another friend of yours, uh, a part of the gay mafia. No, I'm just kidding. He is not. Um, but he is gay and he is fabulous. Hey, Colton. It's Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm actually here with Justin as well. Hi, Colton. Um, so listen, here's our question for you. Supposing, uh, this is completely hypothetical, that we were to invite you over for a dinner party at our house. Um, 
Are there certain things that you uh, have an aversion to or, you know, any sort of dietary restrictions? Uh, that'd be great to know ahead of time. Okay. Let us know. Oh, my God. I'm, like, almost crying right now. Oh, good. We got you to cry. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been holding it back because I'm, like, okay, you know, don't just – we got the cry, baby. Um, I fucking love them. There are people that I really, really just think are cool and, like, that I love and that are just really fun. And I'm always like, I want to be like them. I want to be like that. And so they invited me over to this dinner party. I eat terrible. All I eat is like donuts and pop tarts and like lean cuisine, the healthy choice lean cuisines. Um, and the only thing I don't eat is eggs and like fish. Um, I'll eat fish if it tastes like McDonald's, but if, if it doesn't, then I can't eat it. The starter was fish. I don't know what fucking fish it was. Um, and they're like, Jesse's a sh like chef. Like he, he has a freaking cookbook. Um, and so that was a starter. And the main was like an egg croquette. It wasn't a croquette. That's just the only thing that popped in my head that sounded very fancy, but it was some fucking fancy egg dish. And so I just, I ate it and they could tell that I was like starting to feel like maybe sick or something. And I just kept eating it. And they were like, wait, do you not eat eggs? And then eventually I was like, I don't eat eggs or fish. And it's something that still haunts me. They like on every card they send me or like every time we will see each other, it gets brought up. Uh, but yeah, maybe I should tell people if they invite me over that I don't eat eggs or fish. So if I'm hosting you for a dinner party, it's uh, donuts and lean cuisines on the menu. Donuts though. Oh, donuts. In my jeans is just like drugs and alcohol and bad food. And so like now I don't have the drugs and alcohol anymore. I have to have the bad food. I want to ask about another friendship of yours, your friendship with Serena Williams. I've always been curious to know how you two met and became friends. I was almost 10 years ago. And I had gone to, I was playing a charity tournament that, that Will Ferrell puts on at Indian Wells. Now one of my best friends who was her assistant at the time came up to me and, and she said, hey, Serena wants you to sit in her box. And I'm like, why? Like, what do you mean? Because I like am a massive tennis fan. She was so nervous to meet me. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I, like it's Serena Williams. And then I was also the same way. And then we had the same reaction to each other. And it was like this instant connection. That day, she's like, what are you doing next week? Um, I, I have a dance team. Will you be on the dance team with me? We're, we're called the Kryptonians. I'm like, I have no fucking idea what we're talking about, but yes. She's like, fly to Florida next week. I fly to Florida, have the best two weeks of my life with this group of people that are my family, the Kryptonians. And we train, we train for these dance competitions and like Vogue follow us around one year. And it was like, it is the greatest time because they all share the same delusion as me. And, and Serena really has become someone so close to me because we're two kids. We are two big kids and, and it just feels like family. Can't get enough of Shut Up Evan? I don't blame you. That's why you have to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Shut Up Evan, where you will be able to find advanced access to interviews, bonus episodes, video clips from the interviews, cut for time questions, and so much more. You don't want to miss out. I am fully committing to making the Patreon a much more robust experience for season three. So again, www do people say you know www.patreon.com forward slash shut up evan 
In August of 2019, you posted an uncharacteristic carousel on Instagram that included photos of you in the hospital. In the, <laughs> I love your face as I begin this question. In the accompanying caption, you wrote, I don't want to worry about if I look hot or not on Instagram to be my legacy. I don't want to skirt around the truth to please other people or to gain economic success. I no longer want to project a curated life. I've struggled the past year with trying to find my voice and where I fit in, and that has been the most beautiful struggle I've ever had to go through. I'm posting these photos to let y'all in on my truth. I'm so grateful to be where I am now, a year after these photos were taken, but man, these times were dark. I'm a human being with flaws just like you. If you're in the middle of the dark times, I promise you it doesn't have to last forever. I'm wondering what it felt like to hit post on that. Yeah, um, I just really still to this day struggle with the embarrassment of what what went down before I went to before I got help I couldn't walk I mean I I could I had no sight I couldn't see out of my left eye I almost ruptured a kidney I was in the hospital for a month and I was at my lowest point so in my head and and after seeking help and after you know doing as much as I can to work on my sobriety I was celebrating a year of sobriety at that point. And then it got brought up like, oh, you shouldn't be putting these things out on the internet because that's, you're going to look like you're not hireable. And I'm like, I don't fucking care if no one hires me from here on out. Like I, I deserve to be able to live in my truth. And it doesn't matter if my truth is hard for people to digest. It's not for them then. Don't swallow it. It's for people who are able to go, you know what? I see that same thing, that same problem that I'm going through. And I, by you talking about that, I'm able to, to possibly work on it. That my struggle was so difficult that now I'm able to see it as something that was the most important thing I've ever gone through. And so in that, I'm really happy that I did post that. I did then retreat because I was just like, fuck all of like, fuck these people. It doesn't matter. No one listens to the words that are coming out of my mouth anyway. So what I'll do is if I'm better on the page, sure, I'll put it on the page. What happened? They turn that page and, you know, so that's where I did feel very, very irritated. But at the same time, there were people who, you know, who that reached. You don't have to say it, but I will. I just want to say a big fuck you to Perez Hilton or any of these people out there that put out videos about you or others questioning their sobriety. It is incredibly dangerous. It is incredibly reckless. And in a 2022 culture in which I thought we had moved past these conversations of sort of skewering celebrities and putting this hyper focus on them and their actions, I just, it is incredibly, incredibly wrong. And I am disgusted by it. Fuck this vile human being. Okay. Okay, that's my words, not yours. Moving on from that, have you seen Tyler Posey's OnlyFans? I am deeply curious to know. Yeah, of course I have. Yeah, yeah. Does he still have it though? Um, I believe so. But I am only, I am subscribed, but I am not a paying client. So I don't get to see behind the paywall, but sometimes it'll pop up on Twitter. Yeah, he's fucking talking about me. What's he saying about you? I don't know. Um, uh... <laughs> Um, I just saw him yesterday. I fucking love Posey. Um, I'm not saying like I know the actual truth about this, but there were things floating around that by celebrities getting on that platform, it was taking away from from sex workers. For me, I was like, okay, well, all you need to get off of it because this is not the platform for celebrities then. In a way for po promoting sex positivity, that is what I saw from Posey's thing. Yeah, and he's doing lives talking about me and stuff so but yeah. you like in a positive way or like yeah oh no yeah oh it was only positive 
are you currently dating or, you know, you talk about the fact that you're sort of perennially single is dating something you think about, is there ever a time in which you could see yourself back on the market actively? Yeah. I mean, to quote like uh, Whoopi, like, I don't want you in my house. So I don't, I, I don't want to call you when I'm on a trip. Like I right now want to be selfish. I also don't want, I'm not going to take, I'm not, I want to take like hostages. I, I want you to have a great life. Yeah. I think people are happy. They're happier uh, without me. That's what I, that's what I've come to the conclusion of. Um, I'm not good in relationships. I, if you're like, if you are a banker, like my ass is walking around with a fucking briefcase. I'm like, I'm a banker too. Like, and then I end up just like, my light. I dim my light. So no, I'm not dating. How am I supposed to date? I don't have apps or um, I don't go to clubs. I went to a gay bar for the first time uh, in eight, seven or eight years um, the other night. And it, I had the most fun, but like, what am I supposed to say? Like, hi, hello. Like, would, would you like to go to the Lamps Plus outlet with me in Sun Valley? Like, I have nothing to bring to a conversation with a male. <laughs> You're so hard on yourself. I, I hear you. I, I take all of that in dating apps doesn't interest you. I mean, you say you're awkward, but I feel like dating apps allow for, you know, to sort of maybe squelch some of that awkwardness. I don't find you particularly awkward, but you know, I'm taking your word. I don't know. I don't even like, I haven't been two feet from like a, a male in like four years. And plus if I'm on an app, like I, I, isn't that all you just like send naked pictures to each other? I mean, that's one avenue of apps, but like there's, there's a lot, there's nuance. Trust me. I want to be, I want to be on every fucking app. That'd be fun. I don't want to date, but like, you know, uh-huh. it'd be fun to uh-huh. like go have like so much sex. But, um, but I, this is not, it's on my journey right now, I guess. Okay. Right now. What do you want the next couple of years to look like now that you've, in addition to found your sobriety, I imagine you've also found a new perspective on who you are and your place in this world. And I don't just mean Hollywood. Um, and I hope, my hope for you is that you come away from this a little bit more gentler on yourself. I genuinely feel like there are just so many different people inside of my brain and they're all just like, we're gonna get you. Like, <laughs> we're gonna get you. Uh, but the question was where I see my future. Um, right? Yeah. I'm long-winded. We're both long-winded. So it's, we're a good pair. Me. I'm like, who knows where the, where, what my answer is going to turn into. No, but my future really for me is like, I want to genuinely experience joy and I want to genuinely have fun. And I, I want to feel everything. And I don't have, I don't, my whole career, my whole life, essentially, um, I have been able to, you know, create or build whatever moat um, you know, to accom- to protect the wall that I built to then like, you know, uh, uh, run away from whatever dragons that were trying to get at me. And, and like now, if that were to happen, if the hard times were to fall back and I were to continue, um, whatever, I'm, whatever I'm going through, I want to feel it. And so my future, I, I just want to be level-headed and clear, like clear-headed enough to make decisions that I can stand by and also support um, um, support what I care about and what I believe in. And also, um, yeah, I mean, just, I just wanna like, I would love to still like, it'd be great to work again. Like, it'd be great to 
um, get more opportunities, but also it'd be great to not squander those. That was a, not a good answer. Yes, it was. You're so critical of yourself. Well, like me, I'm like, I'm like watching all like, I, yeah, I just, I liked that answer, but like in my head, it was a different way, but yeah, let's just go with that. Before I let you go, give me a postmortem. How did this go? How do you feel about this roller coaster ride? We just, uh, we just descended. We're back at the station. We're about to get off. Uh, how do you feel? You said the time was up and I was like, no, like, don't go. Like, please don't <laughs> leave me. Don't leave me. Uh, yeah, I, this was great. And I, I genuinely don't know. I just watched this like late Easter interview or something. And she was like, I blacked out. Like, I don't know what I was talking about. That's what happens now. And um, I'm going to try to keep the demons out that are going to say, oh, fuck. Like, why'd you say that? Why'd you say that? Um, I just enjoyed talking to you. And like, I felt like we hung out. And um, I feel like, yeah, it was great. I just got to like have a real conversation. And it wasn't like Hollywood, Hollywood. Like, no, it was two people, uh, two gays Gavin. Two gays Gavin. I just want to say, you could get on the view, Colton, very easily. That's, I think this goes to like the, this idea that you have a warped perception of yourself. Evan Ross Katz, I got a DM from a cat litter company and they wanted to send me cat litter. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'll take that free cat litter. And they sent me a sample. They sent me a sample of cat litter. I, like, it's not as easy for me, like seven years ago, like cool. But like, yeah, if you want to call up, like, I feel like, like Whoopi and Sunny will definitely have my back. Joy and I, I love Joy so much. I just hope she doesn't try to come for me. You have a lot to talk about that's in this book, but also, but also beyond that, it's like there's, this is, again, this is your story, but I don't want to say there's a universality to it because that's not what it is. But I, I said this to you when we spoke the other night, there are things that you revealed in this book that, that like pinged for me in a way because your experience mirrored either something that I had experienced or not the word triggered has a lot of associations. I don't mean the negative triggered. I just mean triggered. It triggered memories in me or, or things that I had buried for whatever reason I could relate to both your experiences and then your response to them. So anyway, they, they deserve to have you. I adore you. I thank you for your time. We'll talk very soon. Thank you. Uh, this was awesome. All right. Have a good rest of your day. You too. I'll talk to you soon. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.